Welcome back to the Modern Cop Podcast. Apologize for the couple week hiatus there. Had some things to get done around the house. I just got done changing out a garbage disposal today, and I'm thinking of putting up a shade sale in the backyard because Arizona is the surface of the fucking sun. Uh, those of you that live out here know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you in Montana, if anybody's listening from Montana, hit me up. I have questions for you about your state. Um, uh, thinking about doing a vacation up there. Joining me today, Troy Van Ostendorp, SWAT sniper out there on the East Coast, uh, owner and uh, and lead instructor at Defender Series Training Group. Troy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Absolutely, Kevin. I appreciate you having me. How's the weather out there? We talked about it a little bit before we hit record, but I'm sitting here sweating in like 104 degrees with no humidity. But what do you have? Yeah, so we're about 86 or somewhere around there with damn near 100% right now. So Ugh. you're going to be sweating all day no matter what here. So, But, but we, call, we call it a beautiful day here. <laughs> right, right. You call it a beautiful day. Uh, you just don't get dry while you're outside like yeah. you, you walk outside you've basically taken a shower and you don't dry again until until you're back inside so uh whereas out here it just sort of evaporates off your skin until you're left with no water content in your body and then you just wither away and die so you know good good times out here in the southwestern desert uh i was talking to a buddy of mine earlier yeah i was talking to a buddy of mine earlier and he's like you know like it's not all that bad uh, like we don't really deal with tornadoes, uh, and it doesn't get too windy here. And I'm like, no, but when it does get windy, we've got these dust storms that are like five miles high, uh, and 40 miles wide, and it just destroys everything in its path and leaves just this, this coat of moon dust. It gets into your air filters, into your car, every, it, uh, it's, it's, it's just miserable out here, but enough about me complaining. Uh, cause, uh, nobody really wants to listen to that, or I can just do an entire episode of me bitching about things. Troy, uh, just to let people get a, an idea of who you are, uh, we'll start with a couple icebreaker questions for you. You've had time to think about them. Uh, you, I think you got some answers already, man. So I'm going to have you hit me with, uh, you can have a drink with anybody living or dead. Who is it? And what are you drinking? Um, so, uh, I wanted to do two answers to that because, um, I think, you know, a lot of people want to meet up with some family members and then I have like an icon that I'd want to. So the first would be, uh, my grandpa on my father's side who I have never met. He died when my dad was 13. Uh, but he was uh, in the Marine Corps as a, a military police, which, you know, I ended up going to the Navy military police and then he became a sheriff where he was from. And so, um, I kind of followed his footsteps without knowing. So, uh, I've always been told that I'm just like him. And, and so I, I would have loved to, I'd love to sit down and I just drink a Bud Light with him, uh, just basic Bud Light guy. So, uh, and then as far as, uh, anything outside of that, I'd love to sit down with Dick Winters, um, the, uh, Colonel from the, uh, band of brothers. And uh, I've watched all that and some of the documentaries after and, and, listen to Jocko's breakdown of, of uh, his books. And uh, I think he's a very interesting guy and been through a lot. And I'd love to hear some stories and some leadership guidance from that guy. I just finished one of his audiobooks. I think it was conversations with Dick Winters. Um, it's not, yep. his, not his audio book, but an audio book about, uh, you know, somebody who went out to, uh, to Pennsylvania and sat down and interviewed him. And, and though he's no longer with us, I mean, his, uh, um, the leadership lessons that he set forth are still sort of the uh, 
they set the bar to this day, right? And you've got you've got like Dick Winters, uh, Hal Moore from from We Were Soldiers, uh, for anybody who's familiar with that. And then even the stuff that you start to hear about, uh, you know, the leadership qualities that that Jocko talks about in his books with Leif Babin or uh, Leif Babin. I don't actually know how to pronounce his last name. So if he's listening to this, yeah, don't please don't punch me in the face next time you see me. Um, but but it, it seems like it all kind of started with uh, with Dick Winters there an Easy Company. Uh, uh, so, no, that's that's a hell of an answer, man. I uh, uh, hopefully you can add another seat to that table because I'd be I'd be sitting down there with you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's just, you know, everybody you hear talk about him, whether they were uh, in at war with him or whether they were just, you know, people that were sitting down to interview him and or the cameraman, like they all have amazing things to say about him. So you could tell that the character of that guy is, is uh, above standard. Absolutely. And, and even, you know, just the the lengths that his subordinates were willing to go through uh, for him, um, we're, we're just, I mean, not super common, uh, on the battlefield. There's there, it's, it's funny to see sort of the, the dichotomy within world war two with some great leaders. I mean, you look at somebody like general Patton, who's got a famous quote of, uh, uh, somebody asks him about leadership and he says, I know I have it, but I can't define it. Um, whereas Dick winners, uh, that dude could tell you exactly what you need to do uh, and, and how to be the best leader. Uh, for for your team, uh, no matter if it's a corporate setting, uh, military, law enforcement. I know law enforcement around the nation right now is is hurting for good leaders. Uh, you know, it, it's one thing to be able to to manage an organization, uh, and in many ways, police departments are sort of corporate organizations, just with you know vests and guns and badges and a few other random things. But uh, you really do need leaders to be able to step in that extra level. I don't need, I don't need you to manage. I need you to lead. And, and it's imperative for the people who are coming in to understand what the differences are and, and when to, uh, you know, when to execute each, each mission set as it were. So I like it, man. And I, I got to hand it to you for your grandfather on your dad's side. I, I maintain, uh, since I've started asking that question that my answer is the same. I never got to meet my dad's dad. Uh, he passed away when my dad was like 22 or 23, uh, somewhere around there. So, uh, no, I like it, man. Those are solid answers. Uh, uh, yeah, I think you'd go sit down with gramps and have a Bud Light. I think, I think you'd have a good time. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, what books are you currently reading or, or listening to? I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of audiobooks. So, uh, uh, maybe I need to be a big proponent of audiobooks because my wife likes to make fun of me all the time. My wife is, is a very fast reader and I am not, and so uh, I'm currently reading Overcome by Jason Redman. Okay. And uh, it, it, it takes me a while. So uh, when I do sit down to do it at night, I'll, I'll get about five minutes in and my eyes will just start right, getting right. heavy. So <laughs> maybe I need to start doing the audio books and, and listen to in the car. Maybe that's a better option. So uh, I might have to look into that. I, uh, I started listening to audio books when I was, uh, I used to work for a pest control company and we were based out of Phoenix so central Arizona, but, uh, I was, I was sort of a statewide service technician and that's what I was listening to. It wasn't books on tape, but it was books on CD because you couldn't Bluetooth. Bluetooth wasn't a thing. Um, but, uh, the, I think one of the first ones I did was the Trident by Jason Redman. Um, okay. And yep. that's, Very that good. was, uh, was sort of my intro, uh, to, to his books. Highly, highly recommended to, to anybody out there listening. 
uh, Jason's got a pretty awesome story, uh, you know, of, of, of going through a complex and very difficult training process and, uh, and being humbled as well along the way. So, uh, awesome, awesome stories from Jason. So I like it. And I, I feel you on the, the five minutes in, dude, I I'm trying to get through, uh, my little book clubs. Uh, uh, what is it? Make your bed by, uh, by Admiral William McRaven. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the chapters are super short. It's very digestible. The pages are like two paragraphs each. Cause the book is like, the book is, is the size of an iPhone pretty much, but yeah, you get, you get 10 minutes into it and you're, you're sitting there. You're, you know, my wife is backhanding me. Hey, you're snoring. Oh, oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool. I'm actually going to look into that one too. Yeah. Check that one out. I think it's like, uh, I want to say it's like 1199 on Amazon and you probably have it at your door, have it at your door tomorrow. Uh, so, yeah. so Troy, you, uh, um, you're out on the East coast now, but you didn't always, you didn't start there, man. You had some time in the Navy. Take, take us through, uh, you know, kind of the life of Troy. What led you to where you are now? So I grew up in Southern California in Riverside County, small city, Menifee and Marietta. I lived in both of those. And I, I, I kind of, as I, you know, became an older teenager, I always knew that I wanted to go into the military and, and then nine eleven happened and I was, you know, just sold. It's like, I'm definitely going now. So I, I tried a few times. I, I tried to, uh, go and, and meet with some recruiters that, or I met with the recruiters and tried to, you know, tell my parents. And, uh, I was kind of, I was kind of shied away from it and told no, 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 even though I was 18 at the time. So that led me to the next time I went, uh, to the Navy recruiter, I, I didn't even tell my parents I was already 18. So by the time I went and told my parents, I basically just brought the recruiter to my door and said, Hey, I want to introduce you to the recruiter. And by the way, I already signed up for the Navy. I leave in seven months. <laughs> <laughs> so Surprise. I just kind of took, took it on my own. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, 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 military police in the Navy and, uh, my first duty station was over in Bahrain and, uh, we just basically did boat side security for all the big ships in the, uh, in the port over there. Uh, really cool experience for, you know, I was 20, had just turned 21 when I got there and then I got to go to Dubai for six months and do the same thing there. And, you know, it, it was not a harsh duty station at all. It was very, very nice. You know, I was living at a five-star hotel in Dubai you know, the E3, E4, and then getting a bunch of money per diem to, because they don't have a base. So I was, I was living like a king out there. I tell people all the time. Uh, came back from there and uh, immediately checked into like a, there's like a mobile security squadron is what they called it at the time. And uh, we had about a month or two between the time I checked in to, hey, we're going to Iraq. Uh, so went out to Texas, did our pre-training for that, and then uh, went overseas to uh, northern Iraq uh, about 10 months. And that was pretty much my Navy deployment and or my Navy uh, contract was pretty much up after I got out. And I, I kind of knew that I wasn't going to stay in the active duty Navy because I'm a big family man. And uh, we had guys, you know, that were there with us when we we're in Iraq and they've had their kids were born and they weren't allowed to go home. Um, we had plenty of dudes to cover it and I'm just, you know, it, it just, it, it rubbed me the wrong way. And uh, I always wanted to make sure I was going to be there for my family and, you know, not leave them too much. And I, I definitely appreciate the guys that do that constantly leaving their families and stuff. 
it just wasn't going to be me. So um, I, I kind of knew I was going to get out and hopefully become a cop. And I've always, you know, wanted to do the SWAT thing. So that was that was on the front of my mind the whole time. And so, um, yeah, I came out and got out. And I did a few other things before I got there. I did some uh, corrections, you know, kind of the, the steps to, to get me there. Uh, state corrections for a little bit. And then I did DOD police, which is just the police officers on bases around here. Um, kind of boring. Nothing's happening. Obviously, it's a you know military base with ton of, tons of dudes that are trained way more than me. And uh, so then, you know, I went to Virginia Beach where I'm at now. And uh, I've, I've been with them for uh, coming up on 10 years. Um, and then uh, been on the SWAT team for just a little over seven years. All right. All right. Now, what I, I do uh, want to go back. What goes through your mind having just, as you said, living like a king in Bahrain, and then you come back and get told, oh, hey, we're going to go to Iraq that has no ocean, there's no ships, and uh, oh, we're also going to be in northern Iraq. Uh, what what goes through your mind as a as a navy uh, like MP, or you just so, like, you're uh, just like just, screw it, it's you know deal with it type of thing? Uh, super excited, to be honest with you. I mean, this is you know kind of some of the stuff that I wanted to to get into. I, I knew it was happening. It was at the time. This is two thousand five. Army is getting taxed. Marine is getting taxed. They're going on deployments and they start saying, Hey Navy, we need you to start doing some stuff out here. And so, you know, that's basically what we did. We were attached to the army when I was there. So uh, I, I was, I was all about it. You know, it's stuff that I wanted to do. And so I was excited about the opportunity. I mean, I had no family, so I didn't have, you know, my parents were in California still, so I didn't have anybody tying me here. So, uh, I was, I was pretty excited for it. Yeah, so why not? Did you spend any time aboard uh, aboard any ships, or was it all uh, uh, like shore based? Yeah, so I the longest I spent on a ship was three days, and uh, we just did some uh, security for the commissioning of a uh, of a ship in in New Orleans. So they bust us out there. We did security, and and for three days, when some of the VIPs that were doing the commissioning were there, we stayed on the ship. For the rest of the time, we stayed out in the Westin. So that was that was the longest <laughs> the longest I stayed on a ship was three days. Let's see, uh, let's see, stay at the Westin or stay on in a berthing area on board a ship. That's a <laughs> that's a tough tough uh, equation there. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I was pretty happy that they did that for us. And so you ended up you ended up out there in Va Beach. What was it that attracted you to the Virginia? Was it just you, you were familiar with that area through your your time with DOD police or, or or with the Navy, or was it sort of like sight unseen? You know, what, screw it, I'm going to go out here somewhere different. Yeah. So my duty station when I was in Iraq was out here in Portsmouth. So it was you know a, a neighboring a neighboring city. So you know I had I lived in Virginia Beach even though I wasn't, you know, here, but I had an apartment in Virginia beach. So, uh, I already had some experience with it, but I also knew that Virginia beach was the largest police department, in our area. Uh, they, I knew that they had a full-time SWAT team. The only ones, other ones that was Norfolk and, and they were uh, a bit of a smaller department than us, not too much smaller. So, uh, you know, I knew I wanted to go to, you know, kind of the premier agency in the city. Yeah, and that that makes sense, man. I mean, when talking to uh, to those of you that are listening that uh, that are looking into joining police departments, the larger departments are going to have far more opportunities. You're looking at 
full-time SWAT teams, motor, you know, like we call them out here, we call them day motors, the guys on the motorcycles. You've got uh, your, your bike units. You've got uh, uh, in, in some of these places that have, uh, you know, beach access or port access, you've probably got a dive team. Um, some of the, the larger areas like, uh, you know, EOD units, if you're coming out of the military or if that's just something that you're interested in, um, uh, are usually set up geographically, uh, air support units, uh, school resource stuff, detective units, the, the bigger the agency, if you get too big and Troy, I don't know how big, uh, Virginia beach is, but, uh, uh, you get too big, you end up just being a number, right? You look at like LAPD, there's no way in hell that, that, uh, that, that chief Moore with LAPD knows all of his guys. I work with 270 sworn officers. My chief will tell me, you know, will call me by my first name, uh, uh, every time I see him. Um, but, uh, you, you do have to kind of balance that out. Whereas I was talking to a dude who's up in Idaho, who is one of six sworn officers. And that includes his sheriff. And that dude has to wear like eight different hats from being on like a regional dive team patrol, uh, lake patrol. He has to handle some like fish and game stuff uh, on top of criminal investigations. So it's just, it's kind of a wild, wild world, uh, depending on where you go. So I, I, I completely understand going to, you know, the premier agency, uh, in your area. And I have to imagine, uh, that there's gotta be some pretty awesome training opportunities for tactical operations units in Virginia beach. Yeah, there's, um, yeah, there is. So, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, earlier, Jason Redman, you know, we've, we've met him, he's come and talked to us and done some talks with us. Obviously he, you know, lives in our backyard and, and, you know, some of the other guys that were actually with Jason on that day, um, that, you know, have their own training companies that, you know, we, we've trained with and, and we, it's almost always, you know, somebody has got a brother that's, you know, um, in dev group or something. And, you know, get some, some training with them, some joint stuff going or, you know, pick up some stuff from them. So it, it's an amazing opportunity for us. And, and we, uh, we are definitely happy to have them in our backyard. So we're definitely benefit from it. And it's good to hear that there is like a symbiotic relationship there, because I think that, that maybe time was that it could have gone either way. Everybody, you know, no, I'm, I'm, I'm the alpha. No, I'm the alpha, uh, to quote my son's, my two-year-old's favorite movie, the Paw Patrol movie. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, now it seems to be more of that. And we'll get into it here when we talk about Uvalde here in a little bit, but there is more of that, like, Hey, we are all on the same fucking team, or at least we're at least playing the same sport, right. You know, to, to a certain extent. So, um, no, that's, that's awesome, man. What, uh, um, what are, what, what's going through SWAT look like on your end? You, you've been there for seven years. You're a SWAT sniper now. Is that a, is that a detail that you can get into or a position that you can get into within a couple of years? Or do you really got to put your time in doing the, the CQB and the assaulter work first? Yeah. So it's definitely, uh, the sniper is, you know, usually, it, you know, it's not a specific time. It's more of a, you know, when, when we're ready and the opportunity exists and, it's it's definitely like you said you got to learn the 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 beginning of the team and the cqc and and just you know it's a lot you know to process being on a full-time team a lot of responsibilities and so um it, it, i'd say about two years if not more before you can go to the sniper school oh my god and what does it look like as far as i mean putting your time in to even test for a full-time team in my agency 
we have to do, I think that's, it used to be three years. Now I think it's two years before you can test. We don't have a full-time team. Um, but I know some of the bigger agencies out here in the Phoenix area, uh, that do have those full-time teams. That is a truly a coveted position. And it is, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest hitters in the crowd are the ones that are showing up to test and you really got to set yourself apart. And it's, it's hard to come in there with less than five, six years on. Is it, is it similar out there on the East coast or is it kind of a different, uh, different, different type of uh, standard? So I think, and just like you mentioned that one of the places, or if not yours, that you were saying that was three years and now it's two, it's, times are changing in, and, you know, I'm sure you see it with the new police officers and we're just, it's not the same. You're not getting, uh, I call it the post nine 11, you know, youngins that were, you know, super eager to, you know, go and, you know, do these things. And, and I'm not saying we don't have those cause we do definitely have a lot of those, but we're just seeing a little bit less. And then maybe a lot of the, you know, all the riots and the hating police and stuff has a lot to do with, you know, people just want to do, you know, their patrol job and, and not do anything else. Uh, so you do, you still got to do right as of right now, you got to do three years before you put in for, put in for the SWAT team. And it's just like you said, in those three years, you know, we're, we're not a too big of a department where we don't have reach into, you know, the precincts and stuff. And that we don't, uh, know the reputation of some of these guys and girls that are, you know, putting in for the team when they put in. So, um, you, are definitely, like you said, you know, it, it's, we're looking for the best ones and, and that's kind of what we're getting, but anyone can put in for it and, and, you know, prove us otherwise for sure. Yeah. And, and it's maybe SWAT more than any other organization. You can be in t- in like top physical condition. You can be, uh, you know, the, the baddest, you know, shooter on the department. But if your reputation is dog shit, you're going to find out real quick that, that other people know that and don't want to hang out with you. Right. They don't want to work with you. They don't want to spend time with you because your attitude is, is shit that either you're always in a bad attitude or you're, you've got this cocky, like I'm the coolest fucking thing that walks the earth type of thing. Nobody really wants to deal with that. Uh, uh, one thing that, that Troy hit on that word reputation for those of you new cops or those of you looking into the job, your reputation will follow you throughout your career. Uh, your reputation may follow you from department to department. If you end up trying to do a lateral transfer, depending on, on the, the distance and, and the reach type of thing. But I mean, you know, cops are, are famous for their ability to, to network and pick out other cops. And I mean, hell, I was out in DC for police week and I met, uh, the, what is he like the, the chief deputy of an agency that a buddy of mine that I'd worked with like 10 years ago here in Arizona, uh, they're out in Florida and, Oh, Hey, do you know Scott? Oh, fuck. Yeah. I know Scott, blah, 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 blah. And, and so that reputation is extremely important for you to maintain. And you do that by looking for work, by always coming in with a good attitude, you're going to have your off days. Um, and, and just doing your level best, right? I think it was, uh, uh, I don't remember who said it. It might've been Patton. It might've been somebody else. If a man does his best, what else can you ask of him? So just, just put your, uh, your best foot forward. And I think that, that will, will help, uh, uh, success. But if you have anything to add to that, Troy, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, no. So I, you know, we teach, uh, we're the primary teachers for uh, CQC. We call it building searches here. That's just what our, uh, state, um, agency requires or calls it. And then our active shooter, active threat stuff. And, and I tell them every time, 
your your reputation started the day you came in for that first test because that's the time that you know the first set of cops laid eyes on you and saw how you're interacting with the other applicants how you carried yourself so it started then it's not like it, you get to you know wait till you're out of the academy to start your reputation it's already started and then in the academy everyone you know has got their hands in training and in certain evolutions of you know, you got, like you said, you got motor carry guys that teach, you know, some stuff. You got our um, DUI guys that go in and teach. So you got, you know, by the time they leave the academy, they've already seen 70, 70 different cops and all the different precincts and specialty units. So 100%, that reputation means everything. And, you know, always just try to be an asset to whatever team you're on and be a team player, back each other up. But Go and look for work. You know, don't be the guy that's dodging calls because you want to sit in your car and play on your phone. That's definitely not going to get you anywhere. And and within, I usually say within about three years, your reputation's already made, and it's it's so hard to change if you want to be. You know, if it's a bad reputation, it's really really hard to to right that wrong it, it, after three years. Yeah, yeah, it, it does take. Uh... Uh, a lot of humbling, uh, you know, you get people who do have negative reputations and then you may start to notice that they have an attitude change for whatever reason, you know, whatever in their life changed. But after so many years of just seeing the same person over and over and over again, it, it as you say, it's hard to break that mold and, and that sort of, it, it's not even a preconceived notion. It's I, I have three years or five years or whatever of, uh, of evidence to show that this is how you are and how you act. And you want, you want the people that you would want to hang out with on the weekends and barbecue with. I mean, you don't have to be everybody's best friend, but definitely, definitely look for work. And, and to touch on something that you pointed out as far as, you know, people from your own department coming out to the Academy, when it was, uh, my Academy time, we did, uh, uh went out to, uh, uh, like, a the Phoenix city of Phoenix train, like driver's training area or something like that. It's all these, you know, mock city streets set up. And the guy who was teaching me traffic stops ended up being, one of my FTOs, you know, three, four months later or whatever. And now he's a sergeant. And so he and I, our relationship started all the way back then. Right. Um, right. So it, it, and as you said, I mean, it truly does start with who shows up to test and we're, we're not seeing the 700 people that used to test for five spots. You know, it's, you're, you're seeing 20 or 30 people test for, for 10 spots. Uh, and, and with the attrition rates out of 30 people, you're probably going to get two, you know, so it, it's, mm-hmm. Uh, you, you did, you brought up a good point and I've heard it, uh, you know, from command staff and, and all levels of supervisors within my own agency and, and from people in other agencies that it's just policing's vastly different than it used to be, man. And it's no longer, you're going to do 12 years. If you want to get on SWAT, it's like, Hey, two years in, okay, we've got four openings on the team. Are you, you know, who's going to put in for it and, and who can we teach, you know, who, who wants to be taught to, to do this job? We've got, my agency's got detectives. I mean, hell, I've got a little over five and a half years on and I'm a detective of, and I've done, been doing that for over a year now. And that, that used to be like, no, no way in hell was, was somebody with less than five years going to even be a detective, let alone somebody who comes in at just under four years, uh, to investigate, uh, you know, sex crimes and crimes against children and whatnot. So, it it's uh it's a different world out there, man. But uh, but to to sh- kind of shift gears a little bit into, uh, with it being a different world, you've taken your your seven years of SWAT experience and and leveraged it to be able to uh, train and educate people uh, 
you know, locally, uh, and, and I assume you get out and about as well uh, in other in other parts of the country. Talk to me a little bit about uh, about Defender Series Training Group and how how did that come to be? What what led you down the path towards? Well, like, what was your light bulb moment? Let's go with that. Uh, so I think it's just something I've always you know seen uh, when I came on is oh you know guys are going to courses and, and stuff like that. And we're always seeking outside courses and whether it be, you know, team guys or, you know, just patrol officers. And then, you know, instead of doing, you know, part-time gigs and, and working, you know, road construction or something like that, I, I wanted to start developing something that I can do that's not Virginia beach related, you know, that's, it's my own thing. And uh, I've done some things where I've been an adjunct instructor for other companies that, that do this. And I still will do that, you know, where, where it's, it, it's advantageous for me and, and the company that I do it for, but I, I wanted to be able to do my own thing and, and, and set my own schedule and do the jobs that I wanted to do. So, uh, and a big, another reason was, uh, especially after our, uh, active shooter event here in 2019, I wanted to really bridge that gap between uh, civilians and police as far as response and how to, how to be and how to react and, and what to expect. And so that's, you know, been a, a shift and a focus of, of the company is, is getting in front of these, you know, larger commercial companies that have, you know, three digit, you know, hundreds and, and more employees and, you know, really get their training going because OSHA doesn't require that, but it's going to happen soon. The OSHA is going to require that, you know, your employees take some for, sort of active shooter awareness course as a part of your job safety, right? So we've seen that shift in OSHA trying to get involved in that. And so, uh, at the same time, I just, you know, I, I love, I love teaching. I, you know, I, I, that's why I still teach the academy and, and it's just a huge passion of mine. And I love, you know, seeing people progress through stuff. You know, one of my courses that we teach is a trauma management class, which, you know, a lot of people just know is like TCCC. And, you know, any, everybody needs to know that kind of stuff. You don't have to be military or, you know, police officer to know how to put on a tourniquet and pack a wound. So, but we've, we've taught dozens of civilians that have come back with stories of been, you know, on the side of a, uh, side of a highway accident happened and they had to go and apply a tourniquet cause they were prepared. And so, uh, I love, I love seeing citizens, you know, take on that protector role as well. Like, you know, you know, as well as I do, we can't be everywhere. The cops right. aren't going to be able to save you. You got to be your own first responder at some point. And so, you know, that part of me, you know, drives to, to get everyone as prepared as possible. And then, um, you know, we go all the way up to, um, from CPR first aid training to, you know, companies to, you know, SWAT level training to other SWAT teams that, you know, don't have it as fortunate as, as our team does to have what we have in our background or our backyard and, you know, have the full-time status. So, uh, just got done a couple weeks ago training a team up in Connecticut uh, part-time team and, you know, spend a week up there with those guys. And, uh, I, I just, you know, love trying to bring them up to, to, you know, kind of where we're at and, and bring some outside stuff to them. So, um, that was, that was a blast. Yeah. You, you get, you get to bring in, I mean, we talk about what's in your backyard to address that. If nobody's, 
uh, super familiar with Virginia Beach. SEAL Team Six or or DevGrew uh, is is based out of Virginia Beach. So when Troy's talking about the resources in his backyard, uh, I mean you've got uh, true uh, you know tier one special operations unit uh, just right there. And for you to be able to take the training that you've received and the things that you've learned and take it to, as you said, smaller agencies that simply don't have the training budget or the resources uh, or necessarily the experience levels um, is you're doing awesome things to get, to get these men and women in, in these tactical operations units trained up because when something goes wrong, it's, I mean, you had your active shooter event, uh, back in 2019, my city had, uh, I mean, he ended up surrendering to us without us firing any rounds, but he fired something like 200 and some odd rounds at us over the course of a couple hours. I'd say that qualifies. We, we had our, you know, little active shooter shindig in an alleyway. Um, it happens in the agencies that, that you don't have a full-time team. Uh, you don't have a ton of resources. You don't have an air unit. You don't, you don't, you don't, you don't, um, but we know it's happening and you, these agencies need to treat it as it's, it's no longer if, but when, right. And, and I think that, that if you're still saying, oh, well, that stuff doesn't happen here. I mean, shame on you guys, uh, you know, to be, to be quite frank, you, you need to start understanding that, that it's just going to happen. As Troy said, OSHA is going to start requiring major corporations that have, you know, X number of employees. To, to have some sort of active shooter preparedness. Hey, you don't like it. Okay, cool. I don't want to send my kid to school with body armors in his backpack, but I'm going to do it uh, because this just, that is what's going to happen. You can't legislate an end to the evil that's out there. You can take away the guns of every law abiding citizen. See, this is the rabbit holes I was talking about, Troy. We're just going to go down for a minute. <laughs> uh, you, yeah, can take, you could literally go door to door, which I don't know who you're going to find to do that either, but you could take guns away from every law abiding citizen in the, in the country, and you're still going to have active shooters. You're still going to have active killers, right? You look at China. Gun ownership is not allowed because they're a communist country. They don't want people to overthrow their government, yet people fucking detonate homemade explosives. They do the knife attacks on trains and buses, uh, you know, same in, in Japan and, and in Europe. Uh, uh, it, it's just, it, it's going to, to happen more often, uh, than we want it to. And it's incumbent upon us to be prepared to do so. And as you said, man, it's, it's the people on the side of the highway that are able to, to stop somebody from bleeding out from a, a compound fracture when they get, you know, into a wreck with a big rig or whatever. So, uh, no, awesome, awesome work. How do people go about finding just uh, while we're on it? How do people go about finding Defender Series Training Group? Before I forget to bring that up. Oh yeah, um, so two ways. Uh, I'm on Instagram. Uh, Defender Series Training Group is is the handle, and then I got a website that is just www.defenderseriestraininggroup.com. Easy peasy, and people can reach out to you. I know there's a contact me page or a contact us page on there, uh, so you can reach out to Troy for. Uh, some training. I do want to want to also just kind of go segue just a little bit back to this, the Virginia Beach active shooter that you had on your Instagram page. You've got a very uh, it, it it gives pause. It, it if you if you've seen Troy's Instagram page, you know what I'm talking about. You've got a, a screenshot of a text message conversation between you and your wife. Uh, you said you're a you're a family man, uh, and and it was not long after you sent that text message. Uh, or, or, well, I don't know exactly how long after, but you ended up having to go home. You asked your wife to meet you out, uh, with a, a new pair of pants cause your stuff had blood all over it, but there was still work to go and do. I really want to, want to hit on that and, and the impact 
this show is for not only the cops that are out there, uh, but for the people who want to to come into this profession, you are going to have shitty days uh, or days where you sit there and just think to yourself, what the hell just happened? Tell me about that event and sort of the impact that it had. But I also want you to touch on that communication between you and your wife, because that is something that that took me a while to learn. Uh, my I used to ignore my wife's phone calls. Uh, uh, pro tip to those of you new guys out there. Don't do that. Uh, that's a way for you to get your ass chewed out when you get home. <laughs> but uh, but Troy kind of kind of walk us through that event and and how it maybe changed you. Uh, but also, uh, you know, what what your wife's thoughts were on it. Yeah. So, um, I'll do that two parts, the, the communication piece. And, and I a hundred percent agree with what you said is, is, you know, I think when I first got on the department, I, I kind of, or, you know, even just my experience in the military overseas, I, I it was, I don't want to burden my wife with the things that happen. Right. And so I, I would, you know, shy away from that. I think, you know, if your wife is a, is a police spouse or, you know, whatever it may be that you're not going to shade them, you're not going to hide the things from them. And then what's going to end up happening is you're going to, you know, bottle it all in. And so, and and I did. And so my wife was really good day one. She said, you know, "Ah, I want to know what's, what what things are happening. I do want to know you know, don't tell me about the, you know, kids and, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. So, but I I want you to tell me this stuff. And, and she, you know, she has a general interest in it anyway. So that helps. And so that communication has always been there. You know, I'll I'll tell a story that um, it it wasn't the first time that I asked for a, a clean pair of boots or um, left my shoes at the doorway with a bag uh, about, I don't know, maybe a week into my FTO process is July 4th weekend. We get a call to, uh, the, we get a call to the beach and, uh, I, I forget how it came out, but, uh, the basis of it, some guy was walking his dog and his dog smelled and ran over to and saw uh, a dead guy. And so when we get there, the scene was, was pretty big as far as, uh, let's say body parts, right? So basically the guy was setting off fireworks drunk at night, um, using like the homemade ones. So like a mortar tube, not like just little mini ones, like decent fireworks. Right. And, uh, it's really crazy because he ended up having GoPro of exactly what happened. He had a GoPro set up next to it. So you, we get to see exactly what had happened. So long story short, he, he basically blew his head off. And, and by the time we got there, you know, it was, it was, the body was, he was stiff and, you know, you could tell that he was, you know, looking down the tube. And so they need to open up the beach though. Right. So there was body parts, you know, 200 feet radius of, of this guy's scene. And who are they going to look to, to start picking stuff up? You know, the, yeah, the, you know, the forensics, they got everything they needed. And they're like, look, we can't get all these little, you know, pieces and stuff. And, and so, yeah, just, they gave me a flag and I just, I'm skewering, you know, brains and brain matter and putting it into a, you know, a red, you know, blood containment bag. And so uh, again, that was, that was the first time I was like, Hey, I'm coming home, but I need a bag to put my boots in. Cause I don't want to walk in the house with them. They got, you know, stuff all over it. I'll tell you about it when I get there. Yeah. And so, 
it, and I say it to say, it, you know, there was many more times that it has happened. And I'm sure, you know, other cops out there have had it happen many times where they had to come home and they don't want to contaminate, you know, whatever we ex- were exposed to in, into the house. Uh, but the communication was always there. And so um, going into into that day, your question was, you know, how has it changed you? So I'm sure just like, you know, your guys' event and anybody that deals with this, in, in especially on the level that it, that it is and, and it was, it, it changes everybody in this city, you know, for the most part. There, uh, there's probably not many people that were unchanged by that event. And uh, many people are affected in, you know, worse ways than others, obviously. And so for me, though, the change was a, a positive change because it just, the way our, our cops, handled it you know from you know the patrol guys are the ones ones who who put this guy down for the most part basically it was and not even just patrol guys it was you know he, he did it so close to our our you know headquarters and our our detective bureau that it ended up being two detectives and a, a canine guy and you know another patrol officer that just happened to all converge at the same time and so one you know i was just super proud of the fact that every single one of those ones just got there so fast and, and just wanted to drive in and, and take the fight to him and, and search and destroy him. And then on, on top of that, on the bigger level, there were so many cops that were willing to, you know, still go into that building when, you know, the shooter wasn't down or he wasn't in custody yet. And then going into after, you know, everything that took place, I, I think, our department did a really good job of, you know, trying to make sure everybody was taken care of, you know, again, I'm sure some will say that they didn't do enough, but uh, you know, it's hard to prepare for something like that, the aftermath of it. Cause we know that, you know, that first, you know, a couple seconds or a couple minutes after a shooter is starting a process that is going to probably go on for years for some. So, uh, you know, I was just super proud of our city, to be honest with you, and it, it, especially my team. Like, we happen to be lucky enough to be working and already, you know, on uh, on shift and, you know, logged into our trucks and, and stuff. So, otherwise, our, our response wouldn't have been nearly as quick, and, and most of it would have been over by the time we got there. And so, you know, I was super happy with the way our team, you know, just did exactly what we were trained to do. You know, nobody on the team or even, you know, the cops in general, nobody was overly, you know, scared, screaming or, you know, erratic, you know, everybody knew what had to be done. And we just, you know, we just handled it. And, and same with the cops that initially go, went in. So for me, it just got, you know, kind of a closer bond with number one, the guys on the team. And then just, and, you know, we're always asked, like, what would you guys change about what you teach? You know, how do you teach active shooter after the event? And I tell you, we haven't cha- we haven't changed anything. So you know that's a and it's not because of me. I, I didn't create you know the the uh, lesson plans and you know the protocol. It was you know stuff that I was taught and you know have made my way to be an instructor for. So um, so yeah, it just kind of changed things that way. And of course, you know, uh, with you know the family aspect of it, I'm sure that you know my wife and 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 kids that day had a lot more worry than you know than most citizens or you know some people but um so you know it kind of got us to the point where i not that i didn't do it before but you know how it is you know we always hey i gotta 
try to say I love you before I leave every single day, right? You know, to every single one of them because I would never want to. It, that that would have been it, and you know, I I didn't say it, or you know, we were fighting or something, and I I just walked out, you know, and it it just it just strengthens that bond and and really reemphasizes the things that you need to do. Well, and and I mean, so many good points that you talked about uh, that'll segue into our next conversation, but it was that, that initial core group that, that sort of locked this dude down or at least start, you know, began to handle that process. Two of them were, were detectives. Um, and I mean, it's not without, without shitting on anybody. There are, there are people that, that I think every cop knows that like, no, that, that dude, that detective ain't coming out. Like that dude's going to sit in his office. Uh, and I just posted the other day that just because I'm a detective or just because the, you know, the detective bureau that I work in, that we're not on the street on a daily basis anymore, that, you know, we don't wear a vest to work every day. Uh, I wear like jeans and a polo shirt, you know, some of the time. So, uh, but that doesn't give you the excuse to not be ready. If you, if it's that, that adage of you stay ready, you don't got to get ready. Right. So, I just uh, would take the again. Those of you listening would take Troy's story to heart and understand that you don't control when and where these events occur. It may be, you know, you think about where your police headquarters is or where your precinct building is. It may be the school down the street, you know, within running distance. It may be the the city library that's a, directly across, or city hall, or, or whatever the case may be. You may be the closest fucking responding officer to it. And then you got to get away from your desk, throw your vest on, don't leave it in your locker, right? Keep everything handy. Um, uh, and just, you know, always, always keep that in the back of your mind. I, I, I really, really harp on that. Um, and then, yeah, again, you know, always, always tell your wife and your kids or your, your, your family, I should say, always tell your family that you love them. Don't, uh, don't go to bed angry. Don't go to work angry. You know, it's, uh, uh, you know, little, little life lessons that we learn, but in talking more, I, I mean, you're, you're the first person I've spoken to uh, on this show since the uh, Uvalde school massacre um, at that at that elementary school, um, and I think that uh, we should talk about it at least a little bit. I, I'm working my way through the Texas Senate hearing. It's eleven and a half hours long. Uh, I am nowhere near done with it yet. Uh, they did push out a timeline, uh, Mike, the cop on his failure to stop podcast. He's got a pretty good breakdown of it. I'm going to be listening to that this week, but I wanted to come into this conversation, Troy, with you without, without sort of having any preconceived notions. I don't want to parrot anybody else's, uh, statements on the matter. Um, but you talk about active shooter response. Um, it truly is a, a multi-point or multifaceted response in that you talk about who needs to be aware of it and who it, 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 to me, it starts with, especially in schools, it starts with your school staff and your teachers. They need that kind of training. And then your patrol officers. I mean, uh, Uvalde had a, an active shooter training, uh, that was basically like get aggressive, find, fix and finish. And, and that's how you respond to active shooters. My agency has pushed out something very similar right after Uvalde, our training unit sent out a, a PowerPoint. Hey, just in case anybody is unclear, if this, then you go balls to the wall and you handle business and then we'll just cut him, you know, we'll deal with it once, once it all comes, uh, you know, once it, once it gets over type of thing. But what, 
looking at Yavaldi and and it's a big a big umbrella question I'm going to ask you is just what are your general thoughts and then we'll kind of pick parts as we go along. Uh, so yeah, so my the the teasers, yeah, hundred percent. It's got to start there, and so you know I know for most part most school districts they're they're. Um, they have a security division, you know, somebody, you know, uh, that is security minded that pushes out training and, and stuff. And from my experience in, there is just so much pushback of what is too much training for this and, and what is too scary to, to think about. And so that's unfortunate because it's at the detriment of, you know, our, our kids' lives. And so there's not enough done there. hundred percent. There's not enough done. Like, you know, I'll, you know, takes just certain agencies that I know of, of like SROs aren't in elementary schools, you know, and that it, it, it's hard to find the budget. I know there's always a, an argument of who should pay a budget for an SRO. And, and for those listening, you know, is that in our city, our school district is separate from the city, you know, in, in their, their their own budget they got their own school board and so there's always been that issue and i think it's just something that unilaterally needs to you know just suck it up and pay the money you know we need to have that at a minimum and then the the uvalde so just looking into that and like you spoke of the senate hearing i kind of went through the bullet points of the uh department of uh safety director Uh, i forget his name I listened to all of his testimony, which, you know, pretty much gave all the breakdown of stuff that I, you know, I want to know and I wanted to learn. And, um, just starting with like physical security issues of that school, right. It's obvious that, you know, active shooter stuff was, or active attacker stuff was not a forethought for, you know, for that school district. Or if it was a forethought, it was, you know, Hey, let's put it in the back of the budget because you had, you know, um, you start with, doors the doors exterior doors that they're not even key carded anymore it's you still have to use a physical key to get into them and so that means every time you know you want to leave it unlocked or you want to go back and lock it you got to have a physical key and who how many people have to have access to that physical key you know if, if teachers want to you know get in from the outside and so you know obviously that's money spent but key card access is 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 huge for that and then going into the the inside, you know, the the door that the the classroom that was the shooter was actually in, uh, there was reported problem with the door and the locking mechanism working fine, but the strike plate wasn't working. To to me, that should be a this is a emergency work order. It needs to be fixed asap. We can't have unlocked doors in a school where the exterior doors are also unlocked. And I think of not even just like for active shooter reasons, you know, what if, you know, you got an angry, uh, angry parent with some kind of domestic dispute that, you know, wants to, you know, come in and, and just grab a child or, you know, kidnap a child. Like there's so many reasons why that stuff is important. It doesn't, you know, just include active shooter stuff. <laughs> um, so and even outside of like, hey, if my door isn't working. You know, as a, as a teacher, and I'm not putting this on a teacher because, you know, she reported it. That was, you know, the extent of her job. Now it's the buck is pushed on to like a maintenance tech or something. 
But as a school, like, all right, what can we do in the meantime to make sure that we can lock this door? Because if you have an active protocol, which it, it was my understanding that they have active shooter protocols that say lock the door, then there's got to be something that we can do in the meantime. You know, there's plenty of other devices that are, are sold out there that can kind of sub in for a lock or, you know, continue to further barricade a door. Um, so from the physical security standpoint, you know, like you said, it, 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 it shouldn't be a question of how much it costs to do this kind of stuff. It's got, it's gotta be, we have to do it now. It, there's, there's just no ifs, ands or buts about it. And it, it's just unfortunate from our side, because like you said, we already have that mindset of, it's not a matter of, it's not a matter of if it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when, right. And, you know, like I teach, you know, to our, our guys. It, it, I just say, just assume it's going to happen again in Virginia Beach. Just because it did once doesn't mean it's never going to happen again. Um, and then, so we want to get into the LE response as well. Yeah, yeah. Before we we jump into that, I mean, you do talk. You bring up good points on on hey, let's let's stop bitching about where the money's going to come from and just get the money to show up. Uh, another uh, Cody Perrin, who's a, a host of the off the X podcast. He's a former diplomatic security service agent. Uh, he wrote up a kind of a white paper on, on school responses to active shooters, as far as from like a threat vulnerability assessment and security standpoint. And we can continue to send $40 billion of taxpayer money to Ukraine. We can send all sorts of money to all these other countries yet you're not going to take the time to look inward. And so it's just my call to action for the politicians. Not that I, I strongly doubt there are any politicians listening to this show, but maybe uh, is you're going to sit there and talk about, Oh, it's for the kids. We're going to, Oh yes. Yes. We're going to, we're going to ban guns for the kids. Okay, cool. Hey, I need a billion dollars added to uh, added to school. Uh, you know, the national school budget or whatever, specifically for security. Uh, I don't know that we can do that. So, you know, that's that's sort of my my one frustrating. Well, not my one, but that's one of my hang ups and frustrations is is to, uh, you know. Don't don't look me in the eye and tell me that you're going to do uh, something for the kids that that does not improve school safety. Uh, not even not even a little bit. Uh because there are other ways that people can bring about uh, evil and and death, um, so that that's kind of the the one thing that I wanted to uh, to touch on uh, with with that uh, and and yeah, now let's uh, let's get into the LE response. So uh, I, I watched the the uh, Senate hearing, and of course we get to see the exchange between the chief and and the dispatcher of the, the things he was saying. And <laughs> I, I'm not going to hit too hard on some of the stuff, but I, I will say, I, I think it's the, there's, it has to start with a, a, a culture in the police department. And I feel like maybe they didn't have that culture. Like I said, when we teach our recruits and every one of our, you know, cops in, in our city, you know, we've, that culture has been around, you know, for us because it, this is stuff that's happening and, and we have to prepare for it. And we want to be the most prepared. And, you know, part of being a, a larger department is, Hey, let's, you know, be the best. And what are we, what is the best tactics we're teaching? And so it's gotta be that culture of, you know, like we, you know, talked about before the LE response has changed so much since Columbine 
to active shooter events. Whereas, you know, even pretty close to when I first got, got on, we were still doing the, Hey, wait for your four guys. And then it was, all right, wait for two and then go. And now it's, we teach solo, you know, response. Like, I don't care if you're the first one there, I need you to distract that guy or girl, whoever is, you know, doing the killing from, you know, killing our kids or other citizens. Even if that means that you become the bullet sponge for him, like that means that's however many bullets that weren't shot into innocent people with, without guns and no body armor and don't have the, you know, tactics to protect themselves. So that culture has got to start within the department. And it, it really boggles me that especially uh, from my understanding that that small department is specifically for school security and, and SROs. And so uh, I'm just really baffled of how that's not a culture if, you know, if that's your, your sole job, you know, to, to be an SRO. And so, um, so that, that's, that's the first start. And I think if, if you start with that culture, then, then you, you have the framework for the tactics that are coming next to it. And, and now it's just a matter of, okay, what is our SOP or, uh, what, what are we, you know, going to do? And, and what's the, the national accepted standard because there's not a true national standard for that kind of stuff. But, you know, like we've talked about or we've heard about, it, they have alert in their backyard. And I know that, you know, just because they're in Texas and alert is in Texas, that doesn't, you know, doesn't automatically correlate to everyone has gone through an alert class. Uh, and for those, that, if you're not familiar, alert, you know, is, uh, I, I want to say they're tied in with Texas A&M. Is that Oh, you know, I, I, I know the, I know of the acronym, but I couldn't tell you like where it came from or, or I can okay, honestly, so, uh, you're going to educate me cause I couldn't even tell you what it stood for. Uh, so it is, oh gosh, now you got me. Um, it's like a, yep. A A L E R R T or something like that. I know I've seen it somewhere. Yeah. I know the last part is rapid response training. I, I just heard it. So, um, so I, I want to say they're when when I say they're tied with a uh, a university because I think they get federal funding for it and so uh, I'm pretty sure most of their classes are free to law enforcement officers. Te- I mean, Texas kind of State pay. University. Uh, okay. Uh, um, oh hell, where where did it go? It was just uh, advanced law enforcement rapid response. There you go. So, you know, that's, uh, again, that's some of the things that we heard in that testimony is, hey, alerts in your backyard, the, you know, the, these are the guys that are the, you know, experts. And, and I know that they had the guys from alert come and do, like we talked about, uh, a site survey like the Off the X does. And, and uh, I, I've done some of those before as well. And like I said, there's many physical security issues that I would have, have definitely addressed. And so, and and again, I don't want to get into specifics and, you know, the timeline and stuff. And number one, we know that, uh, LE for the most part, you know, failed to, to do the right thing in my opinion. And I think that from knowing guys in, in, in my department, guys and girls that did respond to our active shooter event, I don't know. It doesn't matter where you were, what your assignment was during the event. There's, there's always a good chance that they're going to second guess whether they did the right thing or didn't, or they should have done more or shouldn't have. And, and I feel for the guys that were in that hallway, um, you know, uh, at the same time that they didn't make a a great decision. I think, you know, we really got to watch out 
for their mental health in the next few years because they're they're you're getting beat up you know all over the media and and unfortunately a lot of them you know probably wanted to do the right thing and wanted to do what they were trained to do and you had you know somebody there that that was kind of uh, shying them away from that and and that in in our culture and like you've experienced it and I've experienced it if you got somebody in charge, you know, you generally listen to them because, you know, that's why they're put in charge. And you think that maybe they know something that you don't know about the situation. You know, that's why maybe these guys didn't go in. Maybe they thought that, you know, the chief knew something. There was a reason why we couldn't go in that door. And that's why he was telling us that. And, and then you, you know, obviously hear guys on the radio or on from body cameras, they're saying, no, we need to go. We need to go. And so uh, I say that to say that those, those guys are going to be kicking themselves in the, in the ass, you know, for a while, and they're probably going to have some mental health issues. So I, I just, I hope that they get the, the help that they need for that because that's, that's a lot to deal with, you know, that, that, that piece of not going in when you know you should have, and then you wanted to, and uh, I, I should have, you know, I've been in so many situations where I wanted to do something. My supervisor, you know, didn't want me to. And now granted, had it been a life, you know, life or threat, life or death situation, I would have just done it and dealt with the repercussions afterwards. And so maybe that's, you know, something that also needs to be impressed is if in your gut, you think it's the right thing to do. And, and just because you have, you know, somebody with, you know, uh, a silver bar or however you, your captain or sergeant telling you not to, that, that doesn't mean that they're right. You know, that doesn't make them experts. They don't put on, you know, whatever the promotion is, if it's sergeant, lieutenant, or captain, and all of a sudden become an expert, you know, in things. And so we we have, you know, officers in, in our active shooter that were told not to go in by supervisors that were out on the perimeter. And some listened and some did it. And, you know, again, some were, you know, mad at themselves for not going and, and the others were, they just, uh, I'll just deal with it. I'm, I'm going, you're not going to tell me not to go. I know what the right thing to do is. And, and that's because, you know, they've had that training and they know it's, it's time to go. Um, so, and then the other thing that, you know, kind of, I want to tie in for that, that chief is, is what we talked about earlier with like the leadership thing and, and with like Dick Winters is, you know, all the leadership books that you read and, and the good solid leaders out there and Jocko's a big proponent of it is, you know, number one, you, you, you got to pull yourself out of the fight. If you're the head guy in charge, you can't try to be the number one guy on the door, you know, stacked on the door because the reason you're a chief is supposed to be because you can manage your personnel well and you can, you know, Hey, I need you guys to do this. I need you guys to do this that's supposed to be your job, you know, saying that I just, I wanted to save the kids or whatever. That's, that's good, great and grand. But if other people are there, then you need to remove yourself so that you can make, you can make those decisions. And, you know, Jocko says it all the time is, uh, you're right there on the, on the front line, you will say, and you just can't see the right answer, but you pull six inches away. And now you got a broader view and a, a bigger uh, advantage of, you know, what is happening. And, oh, it's, it's that easy. I need you to do this, you know, just because you're able to pull yourself away. And that's, you know, real key thing in leadership. And then the second part is 
listening to, well, actually we didn't listen to it, listen to the, the, um, the guy that gave the testimony of the things that he was saying on his cell phone, it sounded like he was terrified. We need more firepower. We need for, more firepower. I, I don't know what doctrine, you know, teaches that you need a certain amount of firepower before you go and engage an active shooter. And, you know, we obviously see now from the footage that there was, you know, three or four rifles within, within 11 minutes. So I, I don't know what firepower you are looking for, but that, you know, like I said, I, I, because he re- was super repetitive, I feel like on scene, he was probably that trickled down chaos effect, you know? So if my leader, if I look to my leader and I see fear in his eyes, then that's going to translate to me and the rest of the guys around us. If I look to my leader and he's cool, calm, collected, then that also translates down to the rest of the guys. And so, you know, that's a a big unfortunate thing is it's like I heard somebody talking about it uh, on a podcast the other day. You, You can you could have saved 30, 40 people in your, in your 25 year career of being a police officer, but you're going to be remembered for the last thing that you did, especially if it's a negative thing. And so you could have been a great cop and I'm not saying he wasn't a great cop and he probably did great things, but that's going to be the thing. Unfortunately, he's going to be remembered for, you know, for the rest of his life or in the rest of his career, if he does, you know, have one. And so, and I don't know what their training is, you know, there, but I, I feel like they they just needed an, an alpha female or male cop to just be like, no, we're going, you, 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 let's go right now, we're going in, you know, because then there's this whole, you know, issue with, you know, him thinking the door is locked and they, on video, never, never tried to, to even touch the handle or the door handle, you know. And again, I, I, that's why I feel so unfortunate because those other cops and we've been in these situations before where, well, maybe the chief tried it, but the third and fourth guy getting in, he says the door's locked and we need keys. So they're automatically assuming that it's locked as well, not knowing that nobody even tried the door. So it's just that, you know, that unfortunate thing of how things get passed down to the next guys responding. And I'm sure one of those guys is kicking himself in the ass, man, if I would have known the thing was unlocked, I would have just went. And, and so it's, it's just one of those things, leadership. And I think they were, um, I I think they were failed with, by their leadership that day. And I'll I'll be honest with you. And I I feel bad for the citizens of that city because I think, I think that one person could have made or break, make or break the, the outcome of that event. I, I think he could have, you know, either a pulled himself back and directed responders in or just gone in himself. Uh, if he was truly the first one there, uh, I, I think it could have changed the outcome dramatically had had they just gone in sooner, or you know had that leadership ability to, all right, hey, I need you know the first three guys, you guys stack up and you know go handle business or you know what whatever the situation needed at the time that they showed up. Yeah, I think that uh, uh, it it would seem as though the chief was a victim of that OODA loop, right? That observe, orient, decide, and act. And he usually when you, you get stuck on one of those things, 
And unfortunately, you never get stuck on acting. You get stuck between the observe, orient, and decide aspect. You never get to the action part when when you hit that, uh, was it uh, uh, Cooper's color codes, right? You have like a white, yellow, red, and then black. And black is you are, you're done, you're out of the fight, you're not capable of making any decisions. And I have to imagine that that's where the chief ended up. And the, the dudes in that hallway, I mean, uh, you know, there was all the misinformation about oh, well, we were in there within four minutes or, or uh, those cops didn't make entry for an hour. And then you see this video of these helmeted heads with uh, with shields, ballistic shields and rifles, and they're in a hallway. And it was something like within 11 minutes. Uh, and you may not be able to see the the faces of those officers, uh, be they Uvalde PD, Texas DPS, Border Patrol, whoever, uh, those dudes know who's under those helmets, the the guys that were there. They can look at that video and go, fuck, that's me. Uh, and so one thing that, that Troy touched on is those cops are getting shit on right now. Every cop in Uvalde, Texas, who either was there or was not there, there's probably some dude who was on fucking vacation that day who's getting, uh, you know, people he knew in high school, he or she knew in high school, saying what a piece of shit they are, right? So the 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 mental health and, and the emotional support that those officers need right now. Like we need to give a shit about, about that command decisions were made, uh, or rather I should say lack of command decisions were made. Uh, you, you know, not acting is still, is still an act, right? It, it it's, he got stuck. We, I mean, and Troy, you, we, you've touched on, on Dick winners a handful of times to tie it back into easy company. I mean, when you had, and you can see it in the show, you can read about it in the books, but when Easy Company is uh, one of their, they're, they're pushing on the village of Foy at the end of this fucking wood line and their uh, their new, uh, 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 one of the new platoon leaders, this Lieutenant Norman Dyke gets into that black level. He gets in, he gets in stuck into that OODA loop and uh, the, the platoon's just out there pretty well exposed and taking machine gun fire. And it's not until another Lieutenant is, okay, hey, you know, Dick Winters basically tells his tells Ronald Spears, "Hey, get in there, relieve him, and take the platoon the rest of the way in." And it really just takes that one person, and that that was on a much more macro scale. It was on a fucking war front, right? An entire battle where there's tanks and artillery pieces, and and all, all it took was one dude to change the yeah. to change the entire course of that of that engagement. Um, I, I, you talk about mindset, right? Of uh, and there's so many different different ways I can go with this. If you're a school resource officer, understand that your job there, there's a big issue where the people's biggest issue with school resource officers is that in the mind of, of, I will call them the uneducated, but I, I, you know, that would maybe be unfair of me to say that, but in the mind of a lot of people, specifically people who, who are maybe more, more left than right. Um, politically, a school resource officer is there to arrest kids who commit crimes. Okay, a school resource officer is a police officer whose job it is is to enforce the laws of the city and, and of the state uh, where they are working. However, it's incumbent upon the school resource officer to know and to understand that their job is to respond to violent acts within that school. Uh, and in my mind, your fucking school resource officers should all have SWAT training. You need to be CQB experts because your entire existence lies within that school. And again, to, to come back to who's going to foot the bill for all this stuff, just 
they're printing money like it's going out of fucking style. Uh, the money's there. It just needs to be uh, allocated and dedicated because we need to have SROs in the elementary schools because right now, uh, I mean, you touched on it a little bit. I don't know how Virginia is, but in Arizona, I don't know one elementary school that has a school resource officer. And I don't know if it's because we've we've moved away from the SRO is there to protect kids to, well, the SRO, the SRO is there because we have the highest number of calls for service out of these locations, which I get it. The 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 comp stat, the data is, is what's pushing those decisions. Um, that's why I, one of the many reasons where comp stat is, comp stat is both the, the devil and the angel uh, of the policing world. Mm-hmm. Um, but your SROs need to exist for so much more than just handling calls for service of kids fucking spray painting graffiti in the bathroom or smoking weed or, you know, banging out each other's banging each other's brains out underneath the bleachers, right? Like that you, you need to, to be there to protect those children. That should be your number one goal. And if that's not your goal, if you're going in there being like, fuck it, I'm going to get day shift weekends and holidays off and I'm just going to stay in SRO and I don't have to answer too many calls for service and life's pretty good. No, fuck you. That's not what I want you to do in that position. Um, I want you to, as Troy said, it's an uncomfortable thought that you may have to be a bullet sponge, but, and I've never been one to accept the whole, that's what they signed up for thing, but you've got to have the mindset. You've got to run through the scenarios in your mind that, that, Hey, if this kicks off at that school and I happen to hear it kick out on the radio and I'm driving by right now, I'm going to go in and do this. Am I, am I going to get injured and or killed in the process? Maybe, but that's a fucking risk that I'm willing to take. Because that's our job. The Supreme Court has ruled that that cops don't have a duty to protect people. You know what? Fuck the Supreme Court. Make the decision yourself that that is something you are going to do. And if that's not a decision that you can make, if that's not something you're comfortable doing, you need to find work elsewhere. That's, that's my my harsh statements there. But you know, we you talked about the culture of the SRO. I know I just kind of went went ham on them for a little bit. But let's go back and talk. I mean down to, to your, your new guy on FTO, like the world doesn't care that you've been a cop for six hours. You know, you may be the new guy who has to respond to an active shooter. Um, admin, if, if in light of everything that's happened, if admin is still pushing this, there are people now that the people who are, who are middle management and above were cops that when Columbine had happened, or they had just become cops, maybe just after Columbine, as we get further and further away from, from the late nineties there. Um, but the Columbine style response of just, Hey, surround and wait for SWAT is antiquated and fucking dangerous. Uh, and, and Troy touched on that. You can't afford to just sit and wait. You've got to move in. But I would say to admin, and, and Troy, I'll let you speak on this as well, even though you and I are not anywhere near the administrative level positions. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm afraid of, of one day being an admin <laughs> type, of, type of person. But, but if, uh, if you've got an officer who, you know, you're sitting there on the radio screaming at them to stand down on an active shooter and they go in and handle business, uh, I think you fucking owe them an apology. So understand yeah. that that yes you do need to pull back and you need that 30,000 foot view but on the 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 other side of that coin is that you are not seeing everything that your we'll call them your frontline troops right you're not seeing everything that those officers in that hallway are seeing you need to empower them to make their own decisions and not then come back and say hey uh you were or were not in policy uh you know we'll take an example hey you were in policy but 
Uh, we want you to do this next time. No, fuck that. Did you make the correct decision? Did you win? Cool. Did everybody go home or at least more people went home than maybe would have? Okay, cool. Let's take from this, learn from it, move on. As opposed to sitting there and being like, no, uh, I am lieutenant. Hear me roar. You're going to stand in that fucking hallway because I think that door's locked. Well, have you tried the door? Well, no, but the chief says the door's locked. When did the chief fucking walk through here and try the door handle? He didn't. So, yeah. you know, that's... Yeah. That's that's so an entire you, you touch on, that's an entire month's worth of uh, of uh, uh, me being angry that just spilled out right there. <laughs> well, you know, and, and that's that's the thing is is we gotta we gotta police each other and, and as you know patrol level guys and just you know guys that are gonna be like you said down the street or the first ones responding or you're the fourth one there. You got to be willing to say you know, but I don't fuck you. I'm going in. Like you have to have that mentality that, um, you know, yes, we, we took an oath that we are going to, uh, follow all orders given. Right. Okay. But what if it's the order that is, you know, not, uh, not, you know, directly in, in line with saving lives, then I, I don't care. You know, I, I, you, we have to, you know, have that mentality. And then the other mentality that I'll say is, we also, like you hit on, like, we know that not everybody is going to go in. We know that not, you know, a hundred percent of your police department is willing to take that risk that we talk about because it is a, a risk of, you know, without being a SWAT guy and, you know, hitting the high risk search warrants, that's basically what that is, you know, in itself is a single man, you know, extreme high risk hostage rescue type action that you're about to take. And like you said, it, it requires a definitely next level of training. But even if you, you know, don't dig your corner completely, like you still got to be able to accept that risk and go in. And so we know that it's not going to ever be a hundred percent of police officers. We know that like you talked about, whether you're a detective or yeah, I just, I know that they're just going to, you know, the a hot call came out and um, they, they, you know, circled the block a, a few times, until somebody else showed up first and then they responded in, you know, we know those guys and they exist. And so I, I accept that. That's, that's fine. As long as there's more, you know, of the good ones that are willing to go in and, you know, I understand that there's a job for everybody and, and, and there's, everyone's got their importance and it doesn't have to be the alpha, you know, officer, uh, but don't get in their way, you know, let them do their thing. And especially, I don't care if you're an admin or not, is don't get in their way if they're willing to, you know, take the fight to the bad guy, which is is 100% what we need. And like I said, the culture should be from the top down. And maybe that is part of the issue. Maybe, you know, the admin guys or the chief was has been in law enforcement so long that it was just such ingrained of, you know, a different response because then, you know, there was talk of, of the barricade, you know, uh, issue. And it's, you know, he didn't truly barricade his, his door or anything. It was just a, a, another cultural mindset that has got to be fixed is that in my opinion, it's going to be very, very rare for an active shooter event to turn into a barricade. Extremely rare. And, uh, you know, we can what if all day long, but if people are actively getting killed or dying by means of bleeding out from previous injuries, that's an active shooter response 
we still need to go. And we've learned that from so many events, you know, and that's why, you know, whoever is the, the lead in your department, you got to research all these events. The FBI does a really good job at digressing and, you know, di- divulging into all these events, the, the background of the shooter, the response, you know, uh, the response from EMS, the response from police and all that. And we learned that so many times now, people are, you know, bleeding out and dying that maybe would have been saved had we, you know, gone in a little sooner, right? And it, one of the biggest ones reference I use is like the Pulse nightclub. That's a very, very different one because he did end up becoming a, a hostage taker at one point because he called in and said, I got, you know, hostages, you know, I think he said that he, you know, had bombs strapped to him in, in the bathroom. So they're isolated to the bathroom, but people in the main dance floor are still bleeding out and, and nobody was, you know, I don't know if they weren't allowed and, and I'm not you know, going to go into the response to that, but I, I think we, we have to get better at whatever the training is, is, is breaking down the fact of just because they're not actively shooting, stabbing or whatever they're doing, if there's the propensity for them to start again, or if people are, are still dying and bleeding out, then we still have to treat it as if he's actively shooting them or she is actively shooting them at the time. And, you know, that's, you know, training issues and we can go into uh, some of those and, you know, I definitely want to get into some of the, the breaching stuff at, at some point um, that, you know, even if they did think it was locked. Yeah. And, well, and, and we'll touch on the breaching stuff because you do have, again, with your, with your time on SWAT, uh, I can't really speak to breaching other than uh, I have a very basic caveman understanding of uh, uh, get through object. So use tool, get through object. Um, uh, but before we launch into that, I mean, yeah, you, you do need the training. I, I talk a lot about mindset. You need the training to be able to back that mindset up. Um, you know, you look at uh, at some of the and not we won't get into the whole argument of militarize uh, or militarization of police, which I think is a bullshit argument. Um uh, the American public needs to figure out what it wants from its law enforcement officers. But if you look at some of the, the super high speed units uh, in history or, or, or uh, um, you know, over, over the years, you look at like the British SAS, right? Who dares wins very simple, right? Three words, who dares wins a very simple mantra and mindset. You look at like coast guard rescue swimmers, um, you know, these things we do that others may live, right? And it's, they, there's an inherent risk associated with with these jobs that we've chosen to to do and to uh, put our lives toward. Um, you have to be willing to accept that inherent risk. And as Troy said, there there's a, there's a job for everybody. You may not want to be that person, uh, but understand that you work with people who are more than happy to uh, to to put their foot on the you know go toe to toe and put their foot on the line um, uh, when it when that moment happens. And you need to to let them function and let them do their job because they are willing to go in and they are willing to, to do something that, that you are not able, willing, or capable of doing. Uh, but, but, uh, Troy, go ahead and let's talk about, uh, the breaching stuff, man, drop some knowledge on me. Okay. Yeah. So I think actually it's, it's kind of how originally most of this started is, you know, just responding to something about breaching. And so, uh, well, number one, it's like you said, every single cop needs to be trained it, it, from the six months on. You just got an FTO. Everybody needs to have the the same amount of active shooter preparedness training, right? So that tr- 
training has to also include, in, in my mind, it, it has to include some sort of breaching. And so I, a couple of years ago, before our active shooter event, uh, like I said, I did some school visits, some site surveys, some uh, threat assessment visits. And, and kind of one of the things that as we start talking about some of the upgrades that these schools need to have is key cards, key card systems that have the ability to give uh, every police officer access to that key card system in the event of an active shooter, <laughs> we start running into, okay, what do, what do we always expect to fail on us when we need it the most is the technology and communication, right? So there's always got to be a backup. And, and, and so that was my biggest uh, attribution is I said, we have to have a backup. And so after, uh, after our active shooter event, there was money in the budget. I'll just say that the, we had a, a, a money in the budget to to purchase breaching tools, and so I, I submitted the memo for our department to get the kit that I showed you uh, that was on the Instagram. And so it used to be uh, the five eleven active patrol breaching kit. Uh, it's now uh, sold by Stroman Enterprises. Uh, it's always been made by Set, which is Swedish Entry Tools. Um, 511 was just a, a conduit to sell them. And so it, it's a very simple, it's a backpack with uh, basically a, a sledge style hammer that has the, a sickle on the back that can break windows, but it can also act as a sledgehammer. And then the other tool is a uh, typical, you know, halligan that, you know, is pretty common in, in breaching. And so we added, we, we purchased those for the, the whole department. And then on top of that, you know, I put together the training and, and now, you know, that, that inception was maybe, you know, two years ago or so. Every single one of our police officers gets that breacher training. And so they know how to breach an outward opening door which is what most commercial doors are is, you know, by most fire codes, it has to be outward opening and it's usually like a metal skin. Obviously there's tons of exceptions in, in older uh, style doors that are grandfathered in, but most of uh, the commercial stuff we talk about is outward opening doors. And uh, I, I, when I, we teach this and we tell you guys, like you can get into 90% of the doors in the city with this one kit and it, it could be a single officer. We show them how to do it with two because it's, it, it can be a two man job. But at the same time, like if you're by yourself, we, we still show them like with the tools and, and you can go on their, their sites and they, they give, they have video examples of, you know, showing how to use them is the, these guys could have gotten into that door. So the, the kit itself, if, you know, if you had it and if they really thought it was locked, it, it, all right, I'm bringing it up, bringing up the kit and let's get in there. And, and even if the guys that had a Halligan, that, that's, that's the primary tool in, in this is, is just using a Halligan. It's mostly used for outward opening doors. Uh, and so I, I think that, you know, you're starting to see a lot around here. I know a lot of our departments it, it, that are surrounding us are, um, they're doing great jobs at buying these kits and putting them in, um, putting them in the, all the precincts so that patrol level officers have access to breaching equipment and, and know how to use it. it. It doesn't take much. It's honestly, if the officers never touched a breaching tool before in, in four hours, you know, in the right training and a, the, a training door that you obviously have to have, <sighs> 
in four hours they can leave with the confidence that you know what and the time comes i can i can breach a door by myself or with another officer if needed and so i know that you know when we talk about training stuff too is even alert i've done an alert class i've done fletzy's active shooter instructor class you know unfortunately one of the things that's not in a lot of those classes is any extensive breaching they they'll have it as a like separate class or um you know a specialty class or something and you know like you said if you're an sro or you know you you work day shift during the week where you know schools are in session then and even if you work night shift you should still have it because part probably part of your shift is the beginning of school you know as they're going in as you're about to get off you're probably going to overlap some point depending on what the hours are you got to have that training. And, you know, I would just say every single officer on the police department needs to know how to breach a door and have access to the tools. And, and like you said before, and, you know, like I was up in, in Connecticut teaching that SWAT team, like, you know, Joe Smith or Barbara Smith citizen, they don't care how big their city is. You know, their life, the value of their life doesn't care that you have a part-time SWAT team doesn't care that you have an eight-man police department. They value their life and their family's life just as much as, you know, people in LA or people in New York. And so I understand where we can't always get the same level of training, but you still have to have that mindset, like you said, and at least be able to handle something until you get relieved by a bigger agency or, or whoever is going to come relieve you, like a you know state PD or, you know, whatever, a county uh, a sheriff that has a little bit more training, you at least got to be able to handle something for the first, you know, few minutes. And, you know, like I told that SWAT team, like, you know, if one of the, your family members in this city was taken hostage, you know, the first couple hours, it's on you guys to handle this. And they don't care what your police department's budget is. They don't care that you're not allowed to, you know, you only can train twice a month or you're not allowed to have an explosive breaching program or you don't have money for all this they don't care. They value their life just as much as we do. And so that mindset of everyone has to have that base level of, uh, the active shooter training or whatever it may be, because it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when. Absolutely. And it's inevitably whenever I start posting stuff about, uh, about kit or tools that, uh, that all departments should have in their, in their cars. One of my, uh, one of my department, uh, commanders, he was, he was my first Sergeant off of FTO. Uh, he follows along and I'll always get a message from him. I, I am extremely fortunate to work where I do and that they're, they're fairly progressive in like, uh, a, a city near here has a, a pretty substantial size body of water and, and, uh, a, a guy ended up drowning while, and it looks terrible. The guy was, was, uh, he was a suspect. He was, you know, uh, I don't know if he was fighting with the cops or whatever, but they, they essentially let him, let him drown for all intents and purposes. And so I had posted something about like a rope throw bags. And then I get a text message, Hey, we're getting rope throw bags. You can, you can stop worrying about it type of thing, but it's, it's the smaller agencies. Like you said, you've still got to be able to handle business for a certain amount of time, even if it's just with a, with a Halligan or, you know, some, some way to access, uh, a building, uh, you brought up a, a great point earlier on, on key card access. Uh, my city's got a couple of, uh, apartments that to get into where the, you know, the interior corridor where the elevators are to get you up to the apartments, you have to have key card access. And it's like, cool. Hey, how do we get in? Oh, the person just has to come and let you in. What if their boyfriend's beating the fuck out of them? How are they supposed to come and let me in? And then it's like crickets. 
not on the part of my right. department, but on the part of like, you know, building or facilities maintenance or whoever, you know, building manager or whatever. And they're just sitting there like, oh, hadn't really thought about that. One thing that I want to impress upon people who are listening is that when we when we get events like this, where we learn a lot of lessons, uh, uh, and I'm not trying to diminish the loss of life by just calling this a, a, a learning exercise by any means, but with what happened in Uvalde, police departments everywhere are are taking a look inward at, at the way that they answer uh, answer the call, right? The, these active shooter, active killer threats. How do we access uh, interior buildings? How do how do we uh, you know handle uh, uh, you know, trauma, uh, medicine, how do we, how do we do this? How do we do that? Stay on the gas, keep your foot on the gas pedal. Don't, don't let your admin, don't let your uh, admin, if you're listening, listening, don't let city council or, or, or county board of supervisors, uh, you know, sit there. Oh, well, you know, Oh uh, yeah, that did happen a few months ago. Well, we don't really need the money anymore. No, hell no. Like we need to get to the point where you can handle more or less short of aliens coming down from the sky, you should be able to handle whatever comes your way because it's happened so many times, right? Columbine should have been the end of it should have, right? Yeah. We should have taken every lesson that we learned from Columbine and just carried it on through, but that's just not the way it works. Um, nine 11 should have been the end of it. We should have learned all of our lessons there, uh, but we didn't. And we're still, we're still going through this this cyclical motion of, you know, event happens, learning takes place, and then somewhere along the lines, that circle doesn't get completed. Um, uh, you know, on a slightly different note, as far as, um, you know, response goes, I know cops and firefighters uh, don't always play nice together, uh, but most fire stations or fire academies are going to have uh, within their classrooms, a, a board and that board's going to have, uh, like three different response levels. And, and the one that is usually highlighted in red says that we will risk a lot to save a lot. So just, I, I just sort of, that just popped into my mind, but, um, but, uh, you know, Troy, as far as, uh, as the breaching tools go, man, I, one of the things that I'm working on, uh, on putting together, will be coming back into the second year of the good cops giveaway here in, in, uh, in the fall, um, and I'd like to add some breaching tools, uh, to that. Um, if, uh, if they're out there on the East coast, uh, or, or anybody that you know about, where can people go if the department can't, can't get people trained up in it, or if a department's even looking for somebody to come and train them, um, is, is that something that defender series will go out and, and teach on or, uh, you know, what's, what's the best way for people to go about, as you said, just this four hour class, get this, get this, uh, this education that could save a lot of lives in the future. Yeah. So it's a hundred percent within uh defender series training groups realm and, in setting up, uh, we, we would, we would essentially do like a train the trainer event, like, you know, a little bit more than four hours. Uh, but like you said, there, there is, you know, gosh, your fire department resources. And, you know, if, if you don't have the budget for it, if you don't have that, you know, get online, get these videos or, or find your closest, you know, full-time SWAT team. And they're going to be willing to help, you know, help other departments out and send a trainer, you know, just to go and, you know, spend a day with the SWAT breachers of the closest, you know, full-time team, or even if they're not full-time, there's plenty of part-time teams that have a, a robust, you know, training department and, and, you know, the ability to help others out. Uh, I would definitely impress on, you know, 
I would seek within first. I mean, I'd, I'd be glad to go anywhere, you know, needed, but you know, if it's somewhere on the West coast, you're talking about travel expenses and we know how budgets are for right, a police right, department. Right. Right. So, um, as far as like getting the actual, you know, the, the training that I, I would say the train, the trainers need to, there's, you know, uh, tease is a big one out there that, um, it, it's an acronym. Uh, I, it, it's some energetic systems. Uh, I don't know the exact, you know, name for it, but tease is, uh, they do mechanical breaching training, instructor training, uh, explosive breacher training. So, and then there's, uh, you got FET, which is forced entry training tools. Uh, that's another big one. And it's head up by a bunch of guys in Vegas Metro. Uh, I've, I've done a couple of FET schools. And so there's, you know, there's definitely schools out there that are teaching, you know, not only just SWAT guys, but like, you know, if, you know, I know departments have like their training cadre, you know, they would send, you know, those guys to, to get the, uh, the training out there. Uh, so, and, and then like you said, go to a fire department, worst case scenario. I'm pretty sure every firefighter, you know, knows how to use a Halligan and, and has some kind of door set up because they have to do that stuff in, in their, um, you know, academy and, and beyond. Yeah. That's- uh, as far as the, uh, the giveaway though. So I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll text after this and I'll get you in contact with the guy. And, um, I, I think he'd probably be willing to give a set to you. He's actually a SWAT guy too, in in another city, um, in, in here in Virginia. So I'll, I'll get you in contact with him to see if he can't donate a set for you for that giveaway. That'd be awesome, man. That'd be uh, it'd be a huge help to me. And, and actually light bulb moment for me, man is, is yeah. I mean, your smaller departments need not look any further than your fire departments. Really. If, as you said, I mean, if it comes down to it, uh, it may be a different mission set, but, but the, uh, the initial training is going to be very similar, if not identical. I mean, that's that's academy level stuff uh, for firefighters is, is learning how to breach doors and walls and safely get through windows and 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 uh, uh, and things like that. So, yeah, the the options are out there. You might have to look a little bit outside the box, but uh, uh, hopefully we'll uh, we'll start on, on a national level. We'll start moving law enforcement education towards you know, Hey, you might, yeah, you, you might be taking reports for 15 years without ever drawing your gun out of its holster, but then all it takes is one time where the shit hits the fan and you've got to step up. So, uh, yeah, it, it helps to certainly helps to have the education to, uh, to get there. Uh, so Troy, when, man, before we, uh, before we sign off, thank you again so much for coming on, sharing your knowledge, uh, and, and your thoughts on, uh, everything we've talked about today uh before uh before we part ways you've got a microphone to the world uh i do have listeners everywhere uh i'm always uh uh, surprised and humbled to see uh the reach of this podcast uh and and how it grows uh but you've got a microphone to the world man what does the world need to hear from troy (laughs) nothing (laughs) no um uh, I, I like to, my big thing is, and, and it's funny cause you already said it and I, I don't know. Um, I, I think that's a good thing. If a lot of people are saying it is my biggest thing is, is for everybody. And this is, I, I had a, uh, I was a guest speaker last night to a, um, a group that's doing a, a pistol course with a, a bunch of civilians. And, uh, the term that, you know, I kind of led with and I lead with is stay ready so you don't have to get ready. And so, you know, it, uh, unfortunately, you know, we're doing all this aftermath, right? And so we should have been doing this before it happened, like you said. And just, you know, for everybody, whether you're a cop or, or, or a civilian, is every day take a step to 
preparedness and getting yourself ready for something bad that's going to happen and assume it's going to happen. And, and don't think that that's a bad way to live because it's just opening your eyes to the world. And it's like you talked about earlier, there's evil in this world. There is absolute evil in this world. You can't legislate it out of, out of anybody. There's nothing you can do about it. Right. So, uh, my big things are, you know, whether you're a civilian or, or, or a cop is, is fitness, firearms, and then your, you know, defensive, um, uh, you know, your hand to hand, you know, fighting skills is you can't fake any of those things when you need it, when the time comes and you need it, you're not going to be able to fake it. Whether you post some, you know, picture of your coolest gun on Instagram and, you know, like you said, you're a detective, but I see you out there doing your dry fire runs and, and your reps. You can't fake those things. So, you know, always work on those areas and, and, um, and again, just continue building that mindset of, um, I, I'm trying to leave this place, a, a leave this world better than I found it. Yeah, I would, I would, uh, you know, the only thing I would add on to that is, uh, is try and and set the example that you want set for yourself, right? Take yourself back to the beginning of your career. What did you want to see from, from your senior officers and then just implement, implement that. Uh, so Troy, man, thank you again for, uh, for hanging out and talking to me today. Uh, uh, I'll go ahead and sign us off. Stay on with me though. I'll go ahead and, and get us signed out of here. But, uh, uh, to everybody else, I appreciate you uh, tuning into this episode and listening. We got more content coming your way, and uh, and look uh, look out for the Good Cops giveaway here coming in the fall. Uh, so with that, thank you again so much for listening. Uh, and uh, if you want to reach out to Troy, please do so. Find him on Instagram. He touched on it earlier uh, in the show. Certainly, if you have any questions for me, uh, by all means, uh, slide into my DMs, and I'll be more than happy to uh, get you an answer. And if I don't know the answer, I probably know somebody who knows the answer. Uh, So with that, everybody, thank you again. Stay safe. We'll see you on the road.